If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a one-time or reoccurring donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate tab in the menu. Donations made to Mayflower's Communications Fund are tax-deductible and help ensure that this podcast is available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City by the Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, senior minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie. Good morning. Welcome from Mayflower Congregational United Church of Christ, where no matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. I'd like to invite our kindergarten through fifth graders to join me as we read our banned book this week. (laughs) If you change your mind, you can come on up. Oh, come on in, yeah, come on up, come up. Let's widen our circle, yeah. Good, 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 good. So we usually don't do Hallmark holidays around here at the church, like Mother's Day and Father's Day, but there is a really good band book for Father's Day that was just perfect for today. It's called, And Tango Makes Three. This is actually a true story. In the middle of New York City, there is a great big park called Central Park. Children love to play there. It has a toy boat pond where they can sail their boats. It has a a carousel to ride on in the summer and an ice rink to skate on in the winter. Best of all, it has its very own zoo. Every day, families of all kinds go to visit the animals that live there. But children and their parents aren't the only families at the zoo. The animals make families of their own. There are red panda bear families with mothers and fathers and furry red panda bear cubs. There are monkey dads and monkey moms raising noisy monkey babies. There are toad families and toucan families and cotton top tamarind families too. And in the penguin house, there are penguin families. Every year, At the very same time, the girl penguins start noticing the boy penguins, and the boy penguins start noticing the girls. When the right girl and the right boy find each other, they become a couple. Two penguins in the penguin house were a little bit different. One was named Roy, and the other was named Silo. Roy and Silo were both boys, but they did everything together. They bowed to each other and walked together. They sang to each other and swam together. 
wherever Roy went, Silo went too. They didn't spend much time with the girl penguins, and the girl penguins didn't spend much time with them either. Instead, Roy and Silo wound their necks around each other. Their keeper, Mr. Gramsci, noticed the two penguins and thought to himself, they must be in love. Roy and Silo watched how the other penguins made a home, so they built a nest of stones for themselves. Every night, Roy and Silo slept there together, just like the other penguin couples. And every morning, Roy and Silo woke up together. But one day, Roy and Silo saw that the other couples could do something they could not. The mama penguin would lay an egg. She and the papa penguin would take turns keeping the egg warm until finally it would hatch. And then there would be a baby penguin. Roy and Silo had no egg to sit on and keep warm. They had no baby chick to feed and cuddle and love. Their nest was nice, but it was a little empty. One day, Roy found something that looked like what the other penguins were hatching, and, and he brought it to their nest. It was only a rock, but Silo carefully sat on it and sat and sat. When Silo got sleepy, he slept. And, and when Silo was done sleeping and sitting, he swam and Roy sat. Day after day, Silo and Roy sat on the rock. But nothing happened. Then Mr. Gramsci got an idea. He found an egg that needed to be cared for, and he brought it to Roy and Silo's nest. Roy and Silo knew just what to do. They moved the egg to the center of their nest. Every day they turned it so each side would stay warm. Some days Roy sat while Silo went for food. Other days it was Silo's turn to take care of their egg. They sat in the morning and they sat at night. They sat through lunchtime and swim time and supper. They sat at the beginning of the month and they sat at the end of the month and they sat all of the days in between. Until one day, they heard a sound coming from inside their egg. Beep, 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 it said. Roy and Silo called back, squawk, squawk. <laughs> peep, peep, answered the egg. Suddenly, a tiny hole appeared in the eggshell. And then, crack! Out came their very own baby. She had fuzzy white feathers and a funny black beak. Now Roy and Silo were fathers. We'll call her Tango, Mr. Gramsci decided, because it takes two to make a tango. <laughs> Roy and Silo taught Tango how to sing for them when she was hungry. They fed her food from their beaks. They snuggled her in their nest at night. Tango was the very first penguin in the zoo to have two daddies. Soon, Tango grew strong enough to leave the nest. Roy and Silo took her for a swim, just like all the other penguin families. And all the children who came to the zoo could see Tango and her two fathers playing in the penguin house with the other penguins. Hooray, Roy! Hooray, Silo! Welcome, Tango, they cheered. At night, the three penguins returned to their nest there they struggled together, snuggled together, and like all the other penguins in the penguin house, 
and all of the other animals in the zoo and all of the other families in the big city around them, they went to sleep. The end. It was a pretty good story. Yeah. Now, you guys get to go to Kids and Community, so I'll see you later. Okay, we'll see you after a while. Will you pray with me? Was it a misprint, Holy One, that line where the psalmist claims, for the Lord is good, the Lord's steadfast love endures forever, and the Lord's faithfulness to all generations? I, did they really mean all? As in, your steadfast love and faithfulness is for everyone, everybody, the general public, people everywhere, the whole wide world, and every single one of us? We ask because there are some conflicting messages out there. Many of the folks who claim that the Bible is inerrant are also very enthusiastic about deciding who your love is for, which turns out to be a much shorter list than the psalmist's. It's not just them, of course. We confess that the rest of us can name people who we'd rather not share your steadfast love and faithfulness with, not to mention a hymnal or heaven. We know, we know, we know. Anne Lamont, that modern-day psalmist, has explained it to us already. You can safely assume you've created God in your own image, when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. So help us, Holy One, to treasure your words in our hearts that we might not sin against you. We have not been tasked with making lists, but with loving our neighbors as ourselves. Perhaps that starts with believing that all means all. For the Lord is good, the Lord's steadfast love endures forever, and the Lord's faithfulness to all generations. With all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we pray. Amen. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the gospel according to Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 5. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a child, whom he put among them, and said, Truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever becomes humble like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Here ends the reading from our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. I would like for us to take a moment to appreciate the disciples. Those guys. Bless their hearts. They so very reliably say the quiet part out loud for us. You know what I mean. The comment or question that we're all thinking or wondering but are too nervous or afraid or self-conscious or whatever to say aloud ourselves. The disciples 
Do not ascribe to the philosophy better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak and remove all doubt. For instance, when, the, when Jesus tells the parable of the sower, they straight up ask him, what does this parable mean? Most of us would have just nodded along and made some noise that indicates enlightenment, you know, like, hmm, yes. Instead of admitting that we have no idea what point Jesus was trying to make. There are less flattering examples of this, of course, like when Jesus asks them, what do you want me to do for you. They could have requested something that would have shown their spiritual maturity or their thoughtfulness or that they understood on any level at all what Jesus' ministry was all about. They actually didn't even have to come up with anything original. This question had already been asked and answered in the best possible way, and they didn't need chat GPT to generate a response. They could have just copy and pasted Solomon's answer from 1 Kings At Gibeon, the text tells us, God appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and he said, ask for whatever you want me to give you. And Solomon, in the holiest answer of all time, said, give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and distinguish between right and wrong. Great. That is the bar. The disciples definitely do not respond to Jesus' offer in this way. Instead, they jockey for position. Well, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left hand in glory. Jesus was not impressed. And then there's the story we read today. The disciples ask out loud what the rest of us are smart enough to pretend we don't care about. The disciples want to know who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven They are interested in the divine pecking order, heavenly hierarchy, who is in charge of who, who gets the most honor, praise, and glory, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And if we are candid, we are also a little interested in knowing too, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Seems like a good title to have, greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That person probably gets a bigger mansion than anybody else, or at the very least, like a little extra in their social security check every month. Like the disciples, we're interested in knowing if there's a chance that we're in the running. I wonder who the disciples thought Jesus would say. Maybe Solomon, after all, God was delighted by his request for a discerning heart. Perhaps one of the biblical patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, King David would have been an obvious candidate. After all, he is described as a man after God's own heart, should be a front-runner for greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus could have surprised them with a dark horse candidate, like Tamar or Rahab or Ruth, the women who are unexpectedly included in the genealogy that Matthew opens his gospel with. But as we know, Jesus, Jesus does go with a dark horse candidate, but not the women. Jesus called a child whom he put among them and said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever becomes humble like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Oh yes, a child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, of course, thought no one ever. 
Children do not make anyone's short list of candidates for the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. As Reverend Benjamin Perry writes, it's a shocking answer, in part because in ancient Judea, children were considered little more than property. In that agrarian culture, children were assets, an extra pair of hands for labor, but not truly seen as full people. That's not to say children weren't loved or valued, but that value had a decided utilitarian bent. As historian Sean Flynn writes, in the domestic sphere, children gained value as they became contributing members of the household economy. Some scholars theorize that this was partly due to the incredibly high rates of infant and child mortality. Evidence suggests that until the development of modern medicine, roughly 25% of infants died within the first year of life, and 50% of children did not live to see adulthood. Families had staggering numbers of children in part to offset premature death. And while this makes a perverse kind of sense, it doesn't foster circumstances in which parents would be encouraged to form strong emotional attachments with their children. Modernity has granted us childhood as a concept in a way that would have been hard for the ancients to understand. So when Jesus brings the child forward and says, unless you change and become like children, it carries none of the modern, oh, aren't those children so cute, sensibility. It is a radical, subversive statement about the way that divine will inverts earthly power. In the Roman system, Archaeologist Veronique Dassin writes, education also consisted in training children to restrain their alert but unstable nature dominated by emotions. It's the reason ancient carvings feature hilariously taciturn little faces. The Roman ideal was that all the chaos of childhood would be brought under firm and rational control. Tears and disorder were a sign of weakness, an inability to control one's inner tempest. But Jesus, when asked to identify the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, replies that the disciples should emulate the weakness of a child there has been much speculation as to what exactly it means to become like a child. Throughout the centuries, writes theologian Eugene Boring, Christian preaching has derived many meanings from become like a child, humble, innocent, without lust, open and trusting, spontaneous, vulnerable, and dependent. And while the expression can and indeed has many of those connotations, Matthew has Jesus explain that to become like a child is to humble oneself, giving up all pretensions of self-importance and independence and self-reliance and turning to God. The first rule of life together in the new community formed by Jesus is to abandon the quest for status, i.e., who is the greatest, and accept one's place as already given in the family of God. The world could certainly use more of our attention spent on humility, 
no matter what religious persuasion we are. I mean, how different our relationships might be if we were just to practice theological humility for us to, as scholar Ellen Marshall articulates, admit limitation of knowledge and partiality of perspective, to explicitly and deliberately practice hermeneutics, and to remain transparent about faith commitments and accountable to other sources of knowledge. Theological humility would prevent the kind of judgment and condemnation that so frequently leads to partisans, partisanship and for us to divide into teams of ideological purity and to cast out those who disagree with us. Theological humility means seeking out a plurality of voices, committing to lifelong learning and acknowledging implicit bias. It helps us avoid the temptation to believe that we hold the only truth, which so often leads to dismissing and demonizing others. Don't worry, I have emailed a copy of that paragraph to the Southern Baptist Convention. <laughs> they love hearing from girl preachers. Yes. Yes, humility, of course. But as we interpret this text for our time, it may be a more helpful exercise to consider what it means to be a child in our time, to consider what keeps our children up at night, what brings them joy, what sparks their imagination, and perhaps most importantly, what makes them cry. And the children are crying. At the 2018 March for Our Lives, a defiant ex-Gonzalez took the microphone to describe the aftermath of the Parkland shooting. For us, they said, long, tearful, chaotic hours in the scorching afternoon sun were spent not knowing. No one could believe that there were bodies waiting in that building to be identified for over a day. And then they named their classmates who had been murdered. There were 14 of them. After this litany of the dead, Gonzalez stood quietly and cried at the microphone for six minutes and 20 seconds. In doing so, they dared the nation not to see their tears. Years later, we have still failed to pass any kind of meaningful gun legislation. We have not become like these children. Otherwise, we would have passed universal background checks and banned assault weapons. According to the New York Times reporter Matt Mechtel, who spent more than a year interviewing adolescents and their families about mental health, in 2019, 13% of adolescents reported having a major depressive episode, a 60% increase from 2007. Emergency room visits by children and adolescents in that period also rose sharply for anxiety, mood disorders, and self-harm. And for people ages 10 to 24, suicide rates, stable from 2000 to 2007, leapt nearly 60% by 2018, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. 
The decline in mental health among teenagers was intensified by the COVID pandemic, but also predated it, spanning racial and ethnic groups, urban and rural areas, and the socioeconomic divide. In December of 2021, in a rare public advisory, the U.S. Surgeon General warned of a devastating mental health crisis among adolescents. Numerous hospital and doctor groups have called it a national emergency, citing rising levels of mental illness, a severe shortage of therapists and treatment options, and insufficient research to explain the trend. Young people are more educated, less likely to get pregnant, use drugs, less likely to die of accident or injury, said Candace Odgers, a psychologist at the University of California. But many markers indicate that there are really scary things ahead. Yes, kids are doing fantastic and thriving, but there are these really important trends in anxiety, depression, and suicide that should stop us in our tracks. We know what the traditional response to these kinds of statistics and these kinds of narratives have been. Kids these days. They don't have it that bad. They're soft. They just need to toughen up. We walk to school uphill both ways. <laughs> or as Shel Silverstein said it, my uncle said, how old are you? I said, nine and a half. And then my uncle puffed out his chest and said, when I was your age, I was 10. <laughs> Perhaps it is time to admit that this approach is not working. It is not helping anyone. Our children are still crying. And according to the text, it's time for us to join them. Our story today challenges us to try it. This is an invitation to adopt a different perspective, to walk in their shoes for a mile, to stop competing in the imaginary suffering Olympics by comparing the good old days to now, so that we might really listen. Their tears are an invitation to cry with them, or as Jesus said, to become like children. If we do indeed become like children, perhaps we will find the courage to act. We will be compelled to insist that things change. And then? Then we might be considered great. At the very least, we'll have made things on earth closer to how it is in heaven. Amen. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, Senior Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at www.mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. 
Worship services are every Sunday at 10 a.m. with Sunday school classes for all ages at 9 a.m. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street in Oklahoma City, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.